0: Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come and open up your word together. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that fills us so it's not just our ability to understand, but your ability to share and teach. So we pray, Lord, fill us with your spirit, open your word up to us, even as we open your word and read it ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an interesting phenomenon that we've been talking about in Sunday school, among other things, Um, have you ever been hearing somebody speaking and realize you've heard every word coming out of their mouths and you haven't got a clue what they just said? Um, I I used to do this when I was studying for exams and I I turned the page on on the textbook and realized I didn't read any of those words. My eyes scanned it. I don't remember any of it. But there's a difference between hearing, hearing the sound waves coming out of somebody's mouth and listening Really, truly hearing with your mind, with your heart, processing the meaning. All of us at one point or another don't hear, don't hear right, didn't hear the words. But an amazing amount of the time, we weren't even listening. Now, there's one true key thing in life to to remember. It's that God always hears you. He always hears every word. He hears everything. He hears every intention, every need, spoken or unspoken. Santa Claus ain't got nothing on God. But more importantly, he listens. He's not just aware of the data points. He is inclining his ear. He is genuinely listening for the sound of your voice. He isn't just hearing the need. He is wanting to understand what's going on in your heart. He already understands. He is hearing and listening. Not, not just the things you're asking for, not just the things that you may want, because what you may want is not necessarily what you need, right? I mean, I may want a Maserati, but I'm not going to be able to pay taxes on it, so that would be a bad clue. And maybe I shouldn't be driving a Maserati. But on top of that, what if, what if God is using the suffering that you go through at a given moment to be an example to somebody? to minister to what they're going through. If he were to remove the suffering, he'd be removing what you needed at that moment, right? Because you needed to be that example. It requires that you actually stop and say, instead of assuming that I should thank God for all the stuff that he does that I specifically asked for, maybe I should thank God for all the stuff that he does that I need, which perhaps is why Paul says in Philippians, hey, maybe before he does anything, you thank him. You thank him for having the wisdom to know what you needed in the first place. Because God sees the big picture. He sees the tapestry of life. Everything that's going on right now, everywhere, and everywhere that it has always gone on, and everywhere that it's going, he sees the whole big picture all at the same time. And yet, cares about every thread in that tapestry. Every little bit. So there's no such thing as a big prayer request or too small a prayer request because it's all just threads right and he sees the whole picture so what a wonderful gift as we talked about sunday school what a wonderful gift to know with certainty that you can be thankful no matter what your situation is because god knows the tapestry that god is superintending things that god is walking with you through it to know that he knows how everything affects everything throughout all time throughout all situations and yet genuinely cares about what's affecting you personally what a powerful powerful thankful gift that we've given i want you to think about that as we as we look at another miracle baby we've been looking at babies who are born in situations where you say hey that that's not what i expected there's a lot of scriptures before we ever get to the Gospels, talking about babies that for all intents and purposes, nobody should have expected that they would have been born. So if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and let's look at the birth of Samuel. But I want you to be thinking about, I want you to be thinking about the joy that we can have. Maybe, maybe our situation isn't a happy one, but maybe we can have joy even in the midst of it. 1 Samuel 1.1, there's a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zulfite from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jer- Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And let's be honest, most people go, eh, 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 move on to the story. But the details here are important. I get that we can skip over that, but the details, I mean, I know they're hard to pronounce names, I get all that. But what we're told is that Elkanah is from Ephraim, about five miles north of Jerusalem, 15 miles south of Shiloh, which is the center of worship at this time and things. Jerusalem is growing as a political power. He comes from a fairly important family, lives in essentially the suburbs of two important cities. His name means God has created this. Basically, God has created this son for me. So this is an possibly important guy from a vaguely important family all primed to be something of a mover and shaker so god has created this son has two wives the first one that he married was named hannah which means grace uh in the sense of like saying grace at a meal the idea of a prayer asking for god's grace so in many ways that you're talking about and your name means grace but kind of names means prayer So God created a son has two wives. The first is named essentially prayer. The second one he married was called penina, which means coral, Um, and in that sense of a a beautiful jewel that, that keeps growing itself. So if I want to mix a metaphor, I suppose, a fertile jewel. She is this beautiful coral that just grows and grows. So fertile jewel had children and prayer had none, which is probably why God created a son married Fertile Jewel in the first place because his first wife wasn't able to conceive. And we should probably stop there for a second and remind ourselves what that means. Because when we think about that from a modern perspective, I've known several couples that have dealt with childless, childlessness and it, it's hard, it hurts. It truly is and it is truly painful. But in the ancient world, it was more than than painful. At a time when your ability to have children was one of the most crucial things that you can do in a couple, and especially as as a woman, your self-worth comes from that. It's through children. The children till the land. The children take care of the sheep. The children carry on the, 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 the legacy of the family after their parents have passed on. This is crucial that you have children. If a woman couldn't bear children, then that means that line stops there. It's the end of the family. So it's more than just an unmet expectation. It's more than just a, I, I, I wanted children. This is, this is a woman who's pointless. This is a woman who has no self-worth. This is just another mouth to feed. That's the way she would have felt. That's the way culture would have made her feel. And not even maliciously. It's the way the culture was set up. So if there is any added malice to it, what would this woman have been feeling? This isn't just... I feel like I'm missing out. Oh, I would have loved that. Could you imagine how she felt? How despondent, how bitter, how... Well, the one thing we know this can't be is a birth narrative, right? Because we have a couple that can't have babies. Right. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship Shiloh, sacrificed to the Lord Almighty where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord of Yahweh. And they weren't very good at it, if you really carry on in the story. Hophni and Phinehas, very selfish, very corrupt. We can talk about that in a sec. But whenever the day came for God has created a son to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Fertile Jewel, and to all her sons and daughters, which suggests what? All her sons and daughters. Fertile Jewel was was a fertile jewel. She's a baby factory, right? That's got to hurt. So God created a son would give portions of the meat to his wife, fertile jewel, and to all her sons and daughters. But to prayer he gave none because she was a burden to him since the Lord had closed her womb. Did I read that badly? I'm sorry. I'm having a day of it. Did I read that badly? Isn't that what it says? In the culture, wouldn't that have made sense? I give meat to this, but I gave none to this. Yes, he gave meat to his wife, Fertile Jewel, and to all of her sons and daughters. They didn't go hungry. But to prayer, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. You go, so the culture goes, ah, the Lord had closed your womb. You're under a curse. You're a mouth to feed. And he says, no, but I love her. Hasn't she already suffered enough? Oh, because she doesn't have any children, I want to give her a double portion. I want her to know that she is loved. I want her to be able to find joy because she knows this. I mean, that's important. It's important. And this is an important family. This is an important guy. It's important for him to have children, not just they want it. It's important for this family line to continue. By all rights, prayer was a problem, but that's not the way he saw it. That's not the way he looked at it. He saw her not as a problem, but as a person. He saw the tapestry's big picture, but he's like, this thread... Matters. And yet, because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her, which, reason number 437, why maybe don't do polygamy. Maybe not a great idea. But think about it. Peninnah had what Hannah wanted. Children. Hannah had what Peninnah wanted. Her husband's love. Grass is always greener. Each of them had what the other one wanted. And so she provoked her to irritate her, which is actually not a great translation translation because the better translation would be not just to irritate her, but to humiliate her. To keep her down. Because that's what you do, isn't it? Isn't that what so much picking on is for? The whole point of picking on somebody is to push them down so that you feel taller, right? I am malicious to you to humiliate you because I feel empty, because I feel need. My husband loves you, so I must humiliate you and go, at least I have children. That means I've got worth because I've pushed you down into the mud. And This went on year after year. Year after year of humiliation. Year after year of watching somebody else's children grow. That's hard in our culture. How hard is it in that culture? You ever had a problem that went on year after year? Let's be honest. You ever had a problem that went on week after week and you started feeling hopeless? You started feeling despondent. You started feeling like this is never going to get better because it's gone on for days. I've had a fever for days. Weeks, months, years. She's in a bad place. This went on year after year. Whenever prayer went up to the house of Yahweh, her rival provoked her till she wept and she wouldn't eat. God has created a son, her husband would say, Prayer, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? When I was younger, I used to thought, He's a bit of a twerp. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the helpful way to respond. Ah, who needs children when you've got me? As I got older, I realized, it may not be the most tactful way of doing this, but I think what he's trying to do is actually help. He's not, he's not attacking her. He's not saying, Ah, yeah, you're fine. What he's saying is, this: no, because, because he says, why don't you care? Why are you so downhearted? And the, again, the word downhearted here which actually has more of a sense of, why are you so grudging, so embittered? It's not just, oh, why are you sad? You should be happy. You got me. It's no. Why do you have no joy? You have no joy. I know you want children. I know you do. But your self-worth is not based on that. I have children. I don't need children more. I need you. I love you for you. Not because of what you bring to the table. Not because of what you can do for me. I love you. And I know that this is hard. But why live so begrudgingly? You have people who love you. You have me, a husband who loves you. Can't you find joy in that? Again, may not be the most tactful, smartest way of doing it. But I get his point. And he's absolutely right. He's, he's trying to be, it's fairly sweet. This isn't a half-empty, half-full thing. This is a, you're, you're losing your relationship. You're losing your perspective on life because you can't get out of thinking about what you don't have. Now, I grant you, apparently, Fertile Jewel over there is not facilitating your growth. I get that. Fertile Jewel is not making this easy on you. I get that. Stop it. I haven't done anything. I know I wasn't here, but deal. But nobody can make you feel anything. Please, please, trust that God still loves you, that I still love you. Don't get this cycle of pain. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, and remember at some of these feast times, we even talked about this in Sunday school, sometimes people could get a little schnockered by the end of the feast time, right? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, prayer stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of Yahweh's temple in bitterness of soul. Same word for bitterness that we're told Moses used for water in the wilderness that was so bitter they couldn't drink it. Same word for bitterness that Naomi used when she talked about feeling deserted and despondent because her whole family had died. In all these instances, this is people feeling that God deserted them, left them, embittered left them despondent and hopeless like god just didn't care in bitterness of soul prayer wept much and prayed to yahweh had she prayed before i don't know hopefully maybe we're not told verse 20 would suggest maybe she hadn't if you want to cheat verse 20 would suggest i finally prayed to yahweh and her husband had her husband regularly went up to Shiloh. We're not told what he was praying for, but he regularly went up. Maybe he's praying for her. Maybe, maybe not. But sure seems like maybe maybe this is the first time she prayed about this. And here's maybe something worth noting as an application point: if you're hoping for God to listen, maybe you should talk. If you want God to answer your prayers, maybe pray. God doesn't need your words. He knows your needs. But he wants you to engage so that you know he hears them. Well, prayer wept much. Prayed to Yahweh, and she made a vow saying, "Oh Yahweh Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your sake. Actually, what does that suggest? What is she thinking about what God's been doing up to this point? If if you... If you would only look upon my misery, if you'd only remember me and not forget your servant, has he been not been looking? Has he been not been remembering? Has he been not? Has he just been doing nothing? you ever felt like if God isn't answering your prayer, he's doing nothing? Remember where we started with this. Maybe God is going, "What you need is something to draw you to me." Peninnah has no interest in me because she's got all these children. What you need is something that draws you to me. You think I haven't been doing anything? I've been doing quite a bit, actually. If you just look upon your servant's misery, remember me. Don't forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to Yahweh for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. The same sort of Nazaritic vow we just heard last week from Samson, right? We'll hear later on with John the Baptist. From birth, I will separate him out for you. He'll be holy. He'll be your son more than my son. Seems a little mundane, though, doesn't it? Does God really care whether a suburban housewife in a family that has children gets her own children? Is it? Is it really that big a deal? I mean, it, I mean, it is to her, but I mean, is that is that really a huge deal? Does God really? care about that sort of thing? Does God really care about your Aunt Matilda's toenails in a prayer meeting? Does he? There is no small prayer request. There is no big prayer request. There's just prayer. There's just sharing. They're all tapestries that make up the big picture. One of the most crucial things in Christianity is that yes, God cares He absolutely cares about every thread you go, well, does God really care about that? I don't want to bother him I don't want to I mean I'm sure the heavenly switchboard is full. I don't want to yes, God genuinely cares and wants to engage with you. She kept praying to Yahweh, Eli observed her her mouth and prayer was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, which was weird because back then you never prayed silently the whole point of the prayer is you 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 pray it out loud which suggests something about her level of feeling guilty ashamed for what's going on in her life that she would pray silently when that just wasn't a thing then again does god actually need to hear your words to know what's going on we're told even in the gospels jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts so given the context of the end of the big feast, Eli thought she was drunk and said, how long are you going to keep on getting drunk? Get out! Now just get rid of your wine, lady. Great man of God. Then again, again, Hophni Phineas, his son's kind of luscious, kind of corrupt. I can see where he might be thinking that. All he sees is a woman sitting there mumbling to herself. Not so, my lord, prayer replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. And again, that's maybe not the best word. It's determined. I'm steadfast. I'm even stiff-necked. I am absolutely unyielding in what I'm praying about. I am focused. I'm a woman who's really spiritually severely focused right now. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I am pouring out my soul to Yahweh. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman, which is an interesting word because that's the word that chapter used for Hophni and Phinehas. They are wicked priests in chapter two with no regard for Yahweh. She's like, I'm not, I'm not wicked. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, realizing that maybe this woman is actually closer to God than his priestly sons are. Eli answered, go in peace. May the Lord God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Which is actually a play on words. It's me. find chen. But anyway. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast because. Why? Was she pregnant? Had things changed? She's like, I am downcast. I am struggling. I am in anguish and grief. And he said, May God bless you. And she's like, Okay, life is good now. Did anything change? Nothing changed. Why did she eat something? Why did she let go of her grudge? What changed? Fertile jewel wasn't suddenly being nice to her, was she? Was she pregnant now after chatting with Eli? No. So nothing had changed, had it? Had it? What? (laughs) To coin a phrase, she's a bulb who now knows what's going to grow up into. She has... Hope, she trusts God. In the same way that Joshua could keep trusting God even when he was still outside the city that he's besieging. The same way that Mary could trust God when an angel said, by the way, you're gonna have a child. She's like, I, uh, okay. Maybe as you said, I really don't understand the physics of that, but okay. The key thing, the thing that changed in Hannah is the one thing that can always change in any situation. You, right? We, we can change. And again, I've already alluded to Paul talking about in Philippians, don't be anxious about anything. Well, I am anxious. Yeah, well, don't be. Then everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Before you have the tiniest indication that God has answered your prayer, beyond The promise that God always answers prayer just may not be what you want give thanks because you trust the character of God you may not be giving thanks based on what he's done already but give thanks based on knowing him and on his character because that's crucial you need to pray God doesn't need you to pray The old Babylonians and Sumerians used to think that the gods needed our prayers to sustain them as food. Is that what God needs? Modern prosperity doctrine says God needs you to pray because He can't act until you release him. Is that true? Maybe you think, well, God doesn't know what I need until I articulate it. An amazing number of prayers seem to be explaining things to God. As you know, Lord, let me explain it to you. Is that true? God needs us to explain it to him? I submit... (laughs) the person in the equation that most needs you to pray is actually you. You need to pray, not only just to work on your relationship with your Father, not, not only to do that, a Father who loves you, not based on any of your accomplishments, but because he loves you. You need to pray to remind yourself that you serve a God who is not only hearing you, but is genuinely committed to listening for the sound of your voice. He wants to interact with you. Paul says, yes, thank God for that. Hannah could find joy in her life. Maybe the situation isn't any more happy at this moment. She hasn't had any proof of pregnancy. But she remembered that God genuinely hears and listens. It changes her. So early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before Yahweh and then went back to their home at Ramah. God has created a son. Lay with prayer, his wife, and Yahweh remembered him or remembered her, just like he, she'd asked him to, just like he promises to. So, in the course of time, prayer conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Shemuel. God hears. God genuinely listens, saying, "Because I actually asked Yahweh for him, finally got around to doing that." She suffered, she'd fumed, she'd planned, she'd tried, she'd hurt, she'd grudged. But finally she said, Lord, help. And God said, that's what I've been waiting for. That's what I've been looking for. Because what Hannah needed wasn't a baby. She needed an answer to prayer. She needed to come close to the Lord. She needed a relationship with God. Because again, if Hannah had had lots of babies, maybe she would have been like Peninnah. Just a twerp who wasn't very close to God at all. Didn't really need... To follow God. And if you think of this story as being focused on the fact that, oh, it's all about that Hannah needed a baby, they needed a baby, you go, well, then the story falls flat. Because once she weaned Shemuel, was the first thing she did. Pardon me? She gave him away. She gave him to Eli. She gave him to grow up in the in the temple. The whole point of this is that they gave they gave that that God gave them a son, not to take over the family business, but that's important. Not to rub it in fertile Jewel's face, because they gave him away. God gave them a son as an answer to prayer. He gave them a son because he listened and he cared. Because Hannah's little thread mattered to him. Hophni and Phinehas were rotten, and once they were gone, Samuel became the spiritual leader of Israel. He got to, to anoint the first kings of Israel, including David whose heart for the Lord all the kings of Israel were supposed to emulate, and from whose line came the Messiah, came Jesus. Another son who didn't end up taking the family business. He didn't end up bringing children into their family line. He didn't end up spending his life as a local carpenter like his dad. And yet, he was an answer to what Mary never prayed for. And yet Mary said, I find joy in that. Joseph said, marrying Mary is going to be a problem given my community and what they think of her and how she got pregnant. And yet, I can find joy in that. I'm going to look at this situation and instead of seeing all the things that I'm frustrated about, I'm going to see God's actions and God's ministry. And this because a woman named Prayer was actually driven to pray. A foreshadowing, an echo forward of the birth of Christ in many ways. Let me encourage you, as we come up to Christmas, there's so many things, situationally, that you can thank God for. So many presents under the tree that you go, ooh, I liked that. Oh, we get together as family, that was fun, I'm happy. Enjoy those things. There's so many things that we can be despondent about and be frustrated about, people that we've lost. Situations that don't go the way we want. Things that we can be stressed about. May I encourage you to set your sights a little higher than your situations. May I encourage you to stop and think with joy about the God who not only hears your prayers but genuinely listens and wants to be in relationship with you and will always give you what you need. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for flawed examples of flawed human beings doing flawed things and still reflecting you. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your spirit in us. And I pray, Lord, draw us to yourself. Work in our lives to to reflect you to one another, to see you in our lives. And I pray, Lord, help us in everything to choose joy. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.